Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two friends and very special guests. Blake Robbins, partner at Ludlow Ventures, and John Robinson, co-founder president at 100 Thieves. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So both of you guys, in different ways, are responsible for, for 100 Thieves happening. Blake, John, why don't you give sort of the origin story of what is 100 Thieves and how you both came to be a part of it? I, I mean, really, it, it all started when I got into venture. I started to see a lot of people talking about esports and sort of what competitive gaming was. One of our biggest LPs is Dan Gilbert, who uh, also owns Cleveland Cavaliers and Quicken Loans and a bunch of different sort of companies and the entire business business industry. But I had always been like, hey, you need to be getting into esports, maybe buying a team or whatever that would be. And we talked with quite a few different teams. And ultimately, we kept coming back to this question of like, why don't we start our own team and, and what would that look like? And we we didn't really have a great answer for Dan, to be honest, of why we wouldn't just try and build something from the ground up versus buy into another team. And we floated the idea of basically reaching out to one of the biggest gaming influencers, it was Nate Shot. None of us really knew him. I, I basically had probably the closest relationship to him in the sense that he followed me on Twitter like two years ago. But th- that's really the the only true relationship we had with him. I was DMing him for uh, about six months after we sort of set on the idea of like, hey, let's work on something with him and maybe try and build an esports team. He basically ignored me, like rightfully so, for like five of those six months of like, who is this guy just DMing me relentlessly? And I, I was like, eventually, I was like, hey, do you want to go to the NBA Finals? Like, and let, let's hang out. And he was like, okay, like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> like, are, are you serious right now? Let's, let's go to the NBA finals. And I was like, yeah. And like, you'll get to pitch Dan on sort of this, this idea of building something bigger. And he was like, okay, I don't, I don't know what that, like, there's no way that's real, but let, let's see what happens. And fast forward a couple months and we were able to sort of bring Nadechat in to build or I mean, hundred thieves as a concept existed. Nadechat previously played for, a professional team called Optic Gaming. Um, it sort of was this, I don't know how many world championships or titles he technically has to his name, but he, he will go down arguably as one of the best Call of Duty players of all time and sort of was the franchise player for a team called Optic Gaming. Uh, he left Optic Gaming shortly after retiring and started 100 Thieves as basically a clothing brand because he, he wanted to make something a little bit bigger than just a, a shirt with Nadechat on it. That ended up basically naturally everyone was like we want you to create a rival to optic gaming and create a call of duty team or whatever it was and he basically tried to do that on his own it fizzled out and we ultimately i watched that from the sidelines so when i reached out to him uh after dan had flooded the idea of basically building a team uh it was like hey i know that failed when you did it on your own but like let's do it right this time and and that's basically was under the context of how i got him intrigued to talk with Dan and, and re-explore all of the ideas. And yeah, it, that, that was sort of the inception. And from there, Dan was, was okay with investing and Nate was super psyched on, on sort of building this thing, but it was sort of like, okay, what's next? 
and, and there was a lot of sort of work ahead to sort of get everything off the ground. And that's sort of when we were thinking like, we need to bring in an amazing operator who would be perfect for this. And that was when obviously John sort of came into the picture of uh, courting him and, and trying to convince him to jump on to do this as well. So that's, I'll, I'll take a break there, but there's obviously a lot of information. So the, the out there. There are, are DM relentlessly and have tickets to the NBA finals. Yeah, exactly. Great tickets to the NBA Finals, specifically. <laughs> it's like like sending sending pictures to to Nate Chat saying, "Hey, like these are going to be your tickets tonight. Like, you sure you don't want to hop on a plane right now?" And thankfully, he did. <laughs> awesome. Okay, John. So, how did you get involved? I mean, you were spending almost a year, maybe, being an EAR for for Buzzmo, really looking at at esports stuff. What was your journey to get to where you are now? Uh, yeah, for, for the record, uh, Blake did not take me to the NBA Finals to convince me to join. I think they like flew me to Detroit in the middle of December. So exactly, yeah, obviously the same treatment. Slightly <laughs> different recruiting process. Yeah, so my my background is I'd always been in video games. I worked for EA for a long time. I had my own indie game studio. I ran the mobile games group for Nexon for a few years. So it was always on the always in games, but mostly on the game development and publishing side of things. And as I was watching esports, just being a, you know, a lifelong sports fan, it just caught my attention and I was spending more time watching it. And I saw, you know, a few team owners start to build their teams and those businesses become a lot more credible. And as this was just kind of all developing, like, I guess, you know, a little bit on the, on the early side, I decided to reach out to a few, a few firms that I knew and had worked with before and said, now, why don't we go after this? Like, this is a huge opportunity. Why don't we go buy, why don't we go buy a team and, and I'll go run it? And uh, that's when I linked up with Ethan Kurzweil and, and Byron Geeter uh, and the guys over at, at Bessemer who had invested early in Twitch. And they really understood the space and they really understood uh, where esports was going. And we're just like, it's, it's a great firm and, and I really enjoyed my time there. And so, yeah, I was in EIR for, for almost a year where we looked almost exclusively at the esports space. And I think we met with about 60 different teams. And that's ultimately how, how my journey brought me to, to 100 Thieves as, as part of that kind of like diligence process or investment re- review period. I got to know a number of pro sports teams. And that's really kind of how I connected with Blake. We like originally met, as many people do on Twitter. And we were just like two of the only guys who were just like really, really in love with esports and really going after it. And he obviously had like a, like a really unique perspective having met with most of the other teams. And so we just met and we chatted for a while and I was kind of biding my time and really waiting to see how Riot franchising was going to turn out. And I think when I first got to know Blake, I thought the idea of working with Nature was a really interesting concept, but I also thought it was probably a little bit of a long shot to get one of the Riot franchises. And when they got that franchise, it was just kind of like, it was an eye-opening moment because it was really like that external validation that what they were building was as unique as I thought it could be, but, you know, with the support of Riot and that group around the table, you know, Blake, Jake from Detroit Venture Partners, Dan Gilbert, and then Nate Shot leading, you know, leading the thing. It was just, it was, it was such an attractive opportunity for me. Is, is Nate, is sort of the analogy, we're going to do a lot of basketball analogies. Is Nate Shot sort of like Magic Johnson, where he was a sort of a legendary player and now is in an executive role? I mean, I think that's exactly right. Like, like Matt... Matt being Nate Shot, Matt is really, yeah, he's our Magic or our Michael Jordan, you know, like he went from being the best player in, in the game, you know, the best, the best player maybe ever in Call of Duty to then becoming like an entrepreneur and a team owner. And so, yeah, when it comes to 
building a credible brand when it comes to uh, having a connection with fans and when it comes to recruiting players, like he's, a, he's like an unrivaled asset in the, in the world of esports. Talk, let's talk more about 100 Thieves. Why is it a like venture backable asset? You know, because you TVC is necessarily investing in like the New York Knicks or the Warriors, although if they started today, you would probably. But I guess talk about so one, how, how, how it is a, as, like as a business, as a, as a venture scale business, and then two, how, how does it compare to other sports teams or leagues or how is it different? I mean, I think that's probably the question I get most often because at this point, I think a lot of major venture firms have at least looked in had looked at esports teams and evaluated them as potential venture investments. I think there's a lot of nuances to it because I think one of the main pieces or one of the major reasons why we started to see such heavy capital flow into esports over the past, let's say one to two years is because of basically this franchising for context, like franchising in esports is basically the first time that a game publisher like Riot Games or Activision Blizzard for Overwatch has started to share revenue with the actual teams. Prior to this point, esports organizations were essentially just operating on like good faith where they would get like sponsorships and like the, the dollars, like they would get team sponsors and maybe content deals, but they weren't actually getting revenue from the league or from the publishers themselves. So that, that caused a lot of the influx of capital because there were buy-ins for these and it was super competitive, especially for like Riot's North American franchising, which is what 100 Thieves was accepted into. It was a really competitive process and uh, that required like a 10, I think maybe like a, at least a dozen or so million and in, in initial onset of like, hey, this is what you need to have available to get a franchising spot. So that that was initially what led a lot of this capital coming in and what was sort of the first wave of a lot of VCs looking at this space. I think for Ludlow specifically, like I view 100 Thieves as like a venture backable company because of the way that they've approached everything. I think there's a lot of different conversations that can be had around like esports revenue and the league revenue and things like that that might come into play but i think 100 t specifically has been really calculated of like how they are going to build real value in the short term and that's by creating like amazing content uh, they have a series called the heist which is if you've ever seen like hard knocks pretty much hard knocks but for league of legends they also are, are really focused on building like a lifestyle brand on on the merch side and so like those two components alone were attractive from like both the media and then a merchandise business. And then when you throw esports into that as well, like the pure league revenue and potential there, like it becomes a little bit more obvious that this company can be really massive. I think one of the really interesting things about esports teams when you compare it to let's say a traditional sports team is that Hundred Thieves as a brand plays in multiple games and so multiple esports, let's say like they're in League of Legends, uh Clash Royale and Fortnite and Call of Duty. And when they do well in any of those games, the brand equity continues to increase. And like, it's basically like if you built the Yankees that were also like, they, they was the same brand across. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And like you, you just had this monster brand of like, okay, this, this, like team has followers across every single game because like they're fans of the Yankees in general and they know the Yankees are tied to winning. And so they're like, okay, we're going to back them and like, or we're going to be fans of them in every game they move into. And when they sign a player, that obviously means that player is going to be really great because they hold them to like championship standards. And so those things are really like very real. And the opportunity here is to build like a very massive global brand where 
you are just winning on the global scale versus just maybe in North America. And so I think there's, from, from my perspective, it feels like the opportunities are endless. And I think that's what's really interesting. I think for a lot of investors, they might question sort of a lot of the unknowns, but for me, that's, that's what makes it super exciting. Yeah. It's almost as I'm trying to find like analogies um, and, and NBA teams it don't make sense because they only play one sport. It, it would be like NCAA teams is how I, I view it, where it's like you're basically a fan of University of Michigan when they play in every single game, even if it's volleyball or like, you know, and like, you're like, okay, I'm going to root for University of Michigan if I'm watching volleyball tonight. That is very much what's happening in, in esports where people are like, oh yeah, I'm a fan of, of Hunter Thieves in Call of Duty and I'm a fan of them in, in Fortnite and League of Legends because I maybe started watching them in Call of Duty and then transitioned to, into another game. So that that's probably like the closest analogy that I've found. Is a record label a potential analogy there? I would say a record label is pretty close maybe on like the content creator side where it's like if Nate is playing with someone that that's also on hundred thieves. It sort of like gives them the cosign, you know, like in the same way that a record label would when they're signing someone new, it's like, okay, like they're, they're clearly collaborating and they're going to become good friends. And that person clearly has a lot of talent because that person who recruited them has a good eye for talent. Also because you sort of do these 360 deals almost where you, you not only own the content, but you own the merch, you own ability to branch out into different revenue streams. And then it's almost as if you had a whole stake in, recorded music generally potentially when you're saying that they have taken in the, in the esports league as well. Yeah. I, and and I, I think that's right. Like I think the, I, I think record label is probably the closest and just because like going on your analogy, I think that's right where in, and also it's just like a true agency model. A lot of the teams operate uh, similar to that as well. Like where a WME or something like that, where you're basically bringing in content, but or like, bringing in creators and having them all tied under the one brand and then selling sponsorship against those. But it's a little bit more of like a package deal where it's like, Hey, you have the best like Fortnite team or whatever it is. And then you're going to sponsors and, and saying like, look, this is our, how our Fortnite team doing. And then in, in addition to that, like here's how our league of legends team and here's how our call of duty team is doing and look at the reach of those guys. So the way I view it is you're basically hedging in, in, esports because as long as one of the games does well and you're doing well in that game then esports doesn't necessarily the entire category doesn't necessarily need to thrive for you to have a venture return or a great return it's like as long as you're in the right games and and that's basically the biggest question of how do you make sure you're in the right games historically for the past decade or so it's been the same games at sort of the top three with uh, League of Legends, Counter-Strike, and Dota 2. And then in the past uh, two, three years, when Overwatch first came out, uh, that sort of immediately jumped up into like a tier one eSport as well. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the publishers, now we're getting to eSports probably, the publishers and the games? Because going back to sport, other sports analogy, like nobody owns the game of basketball. And thus people could just, you, know, you could theoretically try to create a new NBA, you know, new basketball league. But here it's, is different. Talk about how that works and who has leverage. Sure. And, and also, I just want to address your earlier question about like the, the investment thesis here. To me, I just think it's like, it's relatively straightforward and there are a lot of fundamentals to really like. Do we believe in the growth of gaming? Yes. Do we believe in the growth of competitive gaming? Absolutely. Like, do we believe that people are going to watch other people continue to play those video games? Like, we think that these things are really undeniable 
And I think that that is what's, what's most attractive is, you know, when I was thinking about like basically betting my career on, on esports, right. This was not like a traditional startup where it's like, Oh, maybe let's go for like one or two years and see if it either like explodes and has tremendous success or just like dies right away. We certainly believe that like, no matter what a hundred thieves in these esports teams are going to be around for the next decade. The question is just, uh, the velocity and the trajectory, and that's really kind of what what we've been uh, what we've been focused on at at 100 views. Because um, as you as you mentioned, it's like the publishers and how they uh, how they treat the teams is is super important, and that's kind of like what one of the other fundamental pillars is just you know like every year there are new games and better games coming, and if you believe that games aren't going to change, and League of Legends is the only esport that matters, and that's going to hold true for the next 20 years. Uh, yes, that might make the team slightly less attractive, but I think our view is always going to be that there are four to six esports that really matter, and those are going to change year over year. And the teams, if they're playing in a majority of those, are always going to be, will always have like a really smart like asset of games that they're playing and, and, and therefore in turn like be really, really valuable companies. So basically what I'm hearing from you is that there is a sort of tension between game publishers, and then sort of the people who own these brands. And I'm curious, one, if you could imagine sort of the Knicks, like going cross vertical between like, you know, baseball, basketball, like why are they all, why are they all separate teams and separate brands? Could you imagine, you know, one universal brand? And then the second question is, could you imagine that professional players on the Knicks say, you know what, we're going to start a different league or a different team. I, I guess I'm just curious why there isn't more like branching out or, or competition within normal professional sports, both on the city team level across sports, the way 100 Thieves has done in esports, and also among players in league, you know, players trying to get more of the league itself, starting your leagues. Yeah, I mean, I think Blake, Blake hit the analogy right in that esports looks a lot like collegiate sports or a little bit like European sports like European football where Barcelona has, you know, a soccer team and a, and a basketball team or a number of others. Historically, the reason why you haven't seen the Knicks play in a bunch of other leagues is actually the NBA and all of those pro sports leagues have significant IP control rights around expansion into new leagues or taking those IPs into other territories. But yeah, think about it this way. It's like if you were starting the MLS, would you rather start from scratch with like a brand new New York team? or have the Knicks brand come over and also be a, a soccer team. Like, I think it's obvious that you'd love to have the Knicks and their fan base be a part of that if you're an MLS owner or an MLS fan because it's effectively just immediate co-marketing for you. And that's what's available in, in esports right now. And I think that's why the publishers are interested in working with teams like 100 Thieves because, you know, they're like, hey, I've got this new game that should be pretty cool, that could be pretty cool, and it's got decent viewership, but could it be much bigger if... 100 Thieves, which already plays the game, like helps us co-market that game? Like, absolutely. So I think that's how the publishers are thinking about it right now, or at least the majority, the majority of them. So if, if 100 uh, Thieves or these other you know, brands become you know, 100 million plus revenue business a year, where, where, where do you expect most of the revenue for the breakdown to, to come from? I, th- I think it's a good question. I think in order to reach this 100 million plus threshold, like let's say it was as just an arbitrary line, I think... A lot of that actually needs to come from these leagues. I think if you look at traditional sports, like the media rights deals on, on 
for like NBA or NFL or whatever are a pretty huge revenue driver for these teams. And so I think it's going to come from these leagues as a big sort of anchor of it. But like depending on the team and depending on the organization, they've taken different approaches sort of for that timeline. So there are some leagues or some teams that are super focused on just like going all in, hoping that that revenue from the publisher driven leagues do reach that. There also is like content rights deals, maybe on a per player or per team basis. And then there's also like merchandise and, and sponsorships. But I think to really break that 100 million plus revenue a year deal, let's say like you really need the league revenue to be massive and be kicked back to those teams. And I think one of the things that really intrigues a lot of investors and people sort of in this space is that esports is really unique in the sense that the viewers are there or like the fans are already there. It's basically like just figuring out how to monetize on them and how to continue to grow that. But like, there's such an like big base and already like the fan base 400 thieves alone is massive, you know? And, and that's, crazy to think about so they're not really building that as much as they are like figuring out how to monetize properly on that because historically in esports those have been very under monetized when you compare it to traditional sports where especially when you consider the demographic of these fans for esports where they're typically much younger and and like when you compare that with the MLB or uh, MLS or whatever, they're they're typically a little bit older. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to monetize that properly at the league level. And I think that's going to be probably the biggest key. So, and, and, and I guess going back to your question of how publishers sort of fit into all this, I think from an investor side, I think that's probably one of the bigger risks of just like how publishers play play nicely and how you're, you're depending on them a little bit to drive this revenue. I think it, it, you sort of talked about it perfectly, Eric, where you don't have basically Spalding owning the NBA and basically waking up tomorrow and saying, hey, you need to play with two basketballs instead of one. And that's probably like one of the scarier things. But I think it's also they, they've built an amazing game. And that's the reason why people are even willing to participate in these leagues. And you have to believe that when you have these eyeballs and the smart owners at the table, like we'll just reference Riot and League of Legends in this case, like the owners that are at the, at these tables for these conversations for North America are, are like the owners of like Golden State Warriors and uh, owners of like the Rockets. And you have, you have really big influential businessmen that like are thinking about how to build this business properly, especially leveraging their traditional sports knowledge. So I think it, it, the hope is that, and, and Riot has been very open about like, they also want to learn from these people and given their experience in scaling traditional sports teams, that's a big reason why they chose a lot of these, these guys as well. So yeah, I, I, I know that was a lot of different answers though to your, to your initial question. <laughs> yeah. I try, I try not to speculate too much on how we're going to get to, to a hundred million, you know, like 30 years ago in professional sports teams, made the majority of their money from ticket sales and a little bit of local sponsorship. And now you have, massive national sponsorships and broadcast revenue and apparel is really taking off and the leagues are doing tremendously well. And then individually the teams do things like have their own media networks and real estate holdings, like the professional sports business. Like it hasn't, it's, it's been very dynamic over the last 20 or 30 years. So I would expect a, a digital industry like esports to be perhaps even, even more dynamic. So right now it's like, 
I think if you're running an esports team, you have to be really comfortable with the ambiguity or the uncertainty of knowing that like your major revenue streams today might not be your major revenue streams in two years or five years. Um, not because they're going to go away, but because I think that there are some not obvious ones that are, they're going to be bigger and, and just take take a larger priority as you think about what what makes money today and what could make more money in the future. It, it's yeah, it's almost as if just saying that you know some of the biggest innovations happen in sort of developing countries because they can sort of just leapfrog the existing. So, for example, like you know, people have mobile banking before they have regular banking. And you could imagine, you know, in, in sports, like right now, leagues, it's like broadcast rights and, and ticket sales. But esports could, you know, because it's starting like digital native, it could leapfrog some of the uh, some of the stuff and even precipitate uh, innovation in other leagues that are trying to sort of evolve their their business models, and they might look to esports as for inspiration. I think I think you're you're 100 right there. It's like if you look at the NFL and NBA, they're still trying to provide. 24 7 365 coverage of their players and the storylines and that just happened organically with esports because all of our players were streaming and were online from from day one right like there's literally something going on with 100 thieves 365 days a year and i don't know if you can say that about any other any other sports team you can literally watch our players play either in practice or in competition or just through their you know, like Instagram or Twitch, uh, literally every every day of the year. It's fascinating. Uh, zooming out a little bit, John, you mentioned earlier, you know, the moment when you wanted to double down, you know, on this and, and make it your career. Talk about what sort of led to, to that moment because you've you've been into gaming for a long time, uh, and before it was before esports and before it was, it was even big. So, uh, how have you seen it evolve? And what was that moment like for you when you said, "No, I'm going all in on this." Uh, I'm a pretty methodical guy and certainly coming from like the, the best in the world of doing uh, roadmaps and being very academic about investments and, and decision-making. Uh, that was very helpful. But at the end of the day, I think I actually was watching a Nate Shot vlog where they were like scouting some new players at like, it's basically like the, the combine for League of Legends. And he was scouting some players and Blake was there. And I think our head coach was there. And at the end of the day, they all went to in and out together. And I just looked at my wife and I was like, I, I think I want to go do that. That looks like a lot of fun. I'm, and, and that was, that was actually like, like the decision. <laughs> like, honestly, like I need to put like esports makes a lot of sense. And there are a lot of smart people that, that would agree with that. But at the end of the day, it was just like, it's a bunch of smart, fun guys. And like, I can't imagine doing anything different. It's like my day to day is I get to, I get to run a professional sports team that plays video games and, and an apparel business on the side. It's like, you kind of just got to like take a step back and just be like, that is a good life decision, you know? <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, Blake, you've, uh, you mentioned earlier how you just knew it was going to be a thing. You know, some people say this about Bitcoin when they saw it in 2012 or whatever. Like, it just made sense. It's just math. But, like, you know, <laughs> esports isn't math in the same way, right? Like, so how, how did you know that this was going to be a thing? Yeah, I, I mean, my story, like, I basically, I've been playing video games for as long as I can remember. And I remember basically getting an Xbox 360 when it like first came out and I I was like, I want to play Call of Duty. Like this game looks awesome. And Xbox Live was thriving at the time. And I was like, this is amazing. Like this is going to be so much fun. And I naturally just like started to be like, I want to play this competitively. Like where can I find competitive stuff? And there was a site called Game Battles, which eventually got bought by Major League Gaming. And that was sort of like the grassroots, like, hey, you find someone online and you're going to just like, invite them to your lobby and play against them. And and that was Call of Duty 2. 
and I was like, this is awesome. And there were so many people on there. Like I don't, in hindsight, it probably wasn't that many people, but like the fact that I was playing against random people, like all across the U S like, and never really playing against the same people was like mind, like mind boggling to me. And I was like, this is awesome. And I remember telling my parents, like when call of duty four, uh, call of duty, modern warfare came out, I was like, I'm going to go pro in, in like call of duty. And they're like, no, you're not like, this isn't a thing. <laughs> and and I, I sort of call like the sort of the first wave or like the first time that esports really took off in my mind is actually Halo. Halo three had sort of like a moment where it was, it was just a little bit ahead of its time where major league gaming was doing huge tournaments for, for Halo sort of all across the U S and that was like, to me as a, as a viewer, like it's time, I was like, this is the craziest thing ever. This is awesome. This is gonna be huge. And I remember there was a guy named Walshy who now is like not a pro player and occasionally does commentating for Halo, but it's not obviously at the same level it was. And I remember looking at him, like he's the legend, like he's going to be like best athlete or like esports athlete of all time. He was the first person signed to Red Bull for esports and sort of paved the way a lot of like for this area. And I just remember being like, this is huge. And when I went to college, I sort of forgot about all of it. And and when I graduated and I saw like VCs talking about it, I was like, wait, like this has like always been a thing in my mind. Like, like I, I've been, I've been watching like Halo and, and Call of Duty since like as long as I can remember. And I, that, that was sort of like for me, the impetus to like dive back in deeper. I, I was playing like more casual games in, in college, like, sports games and whatnot and then I started to play Counter-Strike and League of Legends a ton once I realized like yeah these are like the two big ones and that sort of led me back into this space as a fan and and then also as an investor so I've been playing games for a while now and and I still play League of Legends like an hour to a night so that just tells you like how immersed I am and as a fan and like a viewer too. Yeah, you guys don't know, but but growing up, I was uh, addicted to, to to games as well, uh, console games, and then online games. Uh, about 15, 20 years ago, I was uh, one of the best in the world in Army Men RTS, which was a game that only like thirty people a month played. But I was uh, I was one of the best at it. And yet, you guys have come from that experience, rich and successful. And I've, I've wasted my childhood, so I, I don't know what went wrong. Maybe. No, I- I- <laughs> I, I mean, I, I remember sitting in college and turning on a, a Call of Duty tournament and just being like, holy crap, they're playing for a million dollars right now. Like, my parents would never believe this, you know, <laughs> like, like this is not real. And and I, I remember, I, like, I literally remember telling my parents, like, I'm going to go pro in, in video games. And they're like, that's not a thing. And, and obviously, they were very wrong. And I should have listened to my gut, even though I probably wouldn't have been good enough to go pro. <laughs> So, I mean, I, was, I wasn't even the best at video games in my dorm room, so I knew I wasn't going pro. Right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. I, I, I like to say, like, one of the sort of secret sauces of, like, why I think esports is going to be so massive or already is massive is because basically everyone who plays video games, like, sort of feels like they can go pro, even if that's not true. Like, there's basically this perception of, like, because the feedback loops are so good in video games, where, especially in competitive video games like League of Legends or Counter-Strike, where you're naturally progressing in your competitive rank, like, you feel like if you had unlimited time, you could, in theory, go pro, which obviously isn't true. But because of that, like, fans feel, like, ultra-connected to the game, and they're, like, true, like, super fans and, like, true believers in the game so that that to me is like always felt like sort of like the sleeper reason why esports is like become so massive 
another Blake lesson. The first one was DM relentlessly. The second one is if your parents tell you you're wasting your childhood, you say, no, you aren't. Uh, no, yes. I'm not. <laughs> exactly. It, well, don't, don't do that. I don't want to get in trouble, but yes, if you, if you need to do it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny. One thing you mentioned was uh, you mentioned, you said one of the best athletes and you correct yourself saying esports athletes, maybe one, one sort of watershed moment will be when people, you know, talk about Nate shot, et cetera, in the same breath as they talk about Serena Williams or LeBron James. I mean, is, is that possible? I, I mean, in my mind, I, I view it as one in the same. I, I literally only correct myself because people will just be in my neck because yeah. most people don't, don't view it as the same. I think they're obviously two different things. Like the one's way more physical and whatever. But like, I, I think if you did like an IQ test or whatever the, I forget what the actual, test that you have to take in like the NBA or NFL is but like if you did that test for esports athletes like it'd be clear that like the logic and things that they're applying is insane but also like pure mechanical abilities of professional like counter-strike or league of legends players is like insane like it's truly like mind-blowing to me and I I can't even imagine comprehending how many things they're able to process at the same time like I view it like I view league of legends as like 16d chess you know like it, it the amount of things that they're processing and also playing the game at the same time is truly insane to me and so i i, I truly view them as as one and the same i, I don't know how john feels about it <laughs> i was gonna say let's uh i, I want to transition to getting uh, academic a bit and talk about your year at bessemer and maybe we could just talk about sort of like outline the industry a little bit in terms of the different different players maybe high level we, you know, we talked a little bit about you know the team we talked about publishers but from a, you know, if you're a firm like Bessemer, how are you evaluating the landscape and the different ways in which, you know, different sort of subsectors in which you can invest? Sure. At the time, I think we, I think we really settled on uh, this notion of there being like three, three major categories that could drive or aggregate value in the gaming landscape. The first is obviously game developers and publishers. And I think more than ever, we are seeing that with companies like Epic Games and what's happened with Fortnite in the last year and uh, player unknowns battlegrounds. We're seeing games whose velocity is and their growth is is larger and faster than ever before. You know, I think when we were looking at when we were looking at PUBG and its growth, we were looking at a game that was growing faster than any of the other major games in the last ten or fifteen years, and we'd never seen something grow that quickly to that scale. And then it was only eclipsed by Fortnite six months later. So it's like 15, 15 years to break the record and then that record gets broken again in six months. And so I think the, the anticipation there is just like there's going to continue to be massive opportunities for the most creative developers to, to generate just like tremendous, tremendous new, new value when they come out with, with hit games, just given that the hits are just bigger than ever. So developers and publishers is, uh, is definitely the, the first one and the biggest and most obvious one. How do, you, how do you map the market, Blake? I think publishers are, are sort of the one that wields all the power in this space. And so you're like, that's, that's one that I'm very interested in. Obviously it's a little bit different because I'm investing typically at the seed stage or pre-seed as our entry point. So it's a little bit harder to maybe step in and bet on a publisher at this stage, just given that it is historically a very hit driven business. And a lot of people compare it to maybe investing in movies. I think Obviously, the returns of if you invested in like PUBG or Player Unknown Battlegrounds at, at seed stage, like that would have been a little bit better than maybe funding a, a movie. But I, I, I think in general, for me, there's 
it, the actual investment opportunities in, in esports or competitive gaming, let's say in this sphere, are are fairly limited given the power that publishers and and the major sort of live streaming sites hold. Like if you're building a company, like you will see tons of companies doing analytics and sort of stats on uh, and and trying to raise seed rounds or whatever it might be. But the truth is that like those companies are really just using the API that is provided directly from uh, these publishers. And they're every single one of these companies is using the same data or whatever it might be. And so like their value prop isn't necessarily as clear uh, or like at least for, to get people to pay for like the, they could be repurposing it and making it really valuable to the consumer, but it's to, to pay for it is really crazy to me. So like as a consumer, because there's just, so many companies that have access to that same information. So that, that's like one thing that makes me a little bit nervous, but overall, like it's just trying to find opportunities that maybe don't rely on the publishers or the the major live streaming sites or like discord, right? Like those are the, like the three major players. Like it's the live streaming sites, publishers, and then discord. And uh, if you can somehow build something that adds value to gamers in these spaces without feeling like an imminent threat from those guys, you're, you're doing something right. And so like if, if you're not tied to one of those three uh, or fearful of one of those three, then you're clearly finding an interesting opportunity. Well, I was, I was going to add that. Yeah. In addition to like if publishers and developers is kind of one big bucket. The second one is obviously scalable platforms and gaming is now big enough that you see a lot of popular, you know, what would normally be massive consumer internet businesses that are dedicated just to gamers having a tremendous amount of sex, uh, success, excuse me. Like, so you would see uh, something like Steam, for example, made by Valve, is the corollary is it's like the Amazon for gamers. You know, it's like where they do all of their commerce. And with something like Twitch, it's really just the YouTube for gamers is where they do a lot of their, their like watching or their consumption of, of gaming. And then the last one would obviously be Discord, uh, which is, you know, communication for gaming. So we are getting to this point where like gaming is no longer, obviously gaming is no longer a niche. It's not like a small subset. It's like gaming is so big now that you can create customized applications of major consumer internet companies built specifically for gamers and, and build hundred, you know, hundred million plus or billion dollar businesses on the back of that. And so obviously, yeah, the three big examples would be, would be Steam and, and Twitch and Discord but I'm, I'm pretty bullish that they're going to be a number of others over the next decade. Are there any other sectors where we're, or subsectors where we're seeing, you know, unicorn outcomes today in esports or gaming more broadly? Unicorn status, I would say uh, really the most recent is, is Discord in, in this space. I think aside from that, there are some companies that are, are worth quite a lot and driving real value. I think one that has used to be talked about quite a bit, but hasn't been talked about as much uh, recently is, is a company called Face It, which is basically a tournament, like an online tournament provider for Counter-Strike and sort of other games that maybe don't have publisher-driven tournaments and, and leagues. So for the for the bigger landscape of like esports, there's basically historically been two approaches from publishers for esports. So it's either like the publisher is super hands-on and like running the entire thing and not letting anyone else run tournaments. And then there's also like the flip side of that, which is like they're not doing anything and sort of taking like a golf approach where you have independent tournament organizers and then like maybe PGA, like 
ultimately will say like this is a major or a minor tournament. And so in Counter Strike, that that's been the approach to date, where there's basically like dozens of, of tournament organizers, and Face It is one of the major tournament organizers, but also has built basically the like the super high end matchmaking is how I would describe it, where they like you if you're better than what's in the matchmaking of a tradition or like what's in the game and you're like a semi pro player you're not going to just play like the highest level uh ranked competitive you're going to play with like other semi pros and pros and so they built their own matchmaking on top of it all and they're doing quite well as well i would take a slightly different uh i have, yeah maybe a slightly different take than take than Blake and then i do think a lot of the infrastructure underlying gaming is now pretty well built. And so if you want to beat any of those companies, you need to build it better, which is a really difficult thing to do, I guess is, and obviously I'm not a full-time investor anymore, but do think about this stuff a lot. Like I think the next generation of great companies are going to be the companies that think about like, okay, you're playing games and X. And by doing that, you make the playing experience or like watch experience that much better. And I think that there are a couple of companies that I've seen recently that are coming up with some novel approaches and it's still super, super early, but have some good ideas for like how gaming, how they can make it even, even more fun um, or even more entertaining or uh, even more engrossing. I really like those ideas because the, the core platform or, or gaming as a platform, I think is, is a brilliant thing. So how people can add to that, I think is going to be the next, the next big step. Yeah, I, I think we're just scratching the surface in terms of how you can make this a more enjoyable experience for viewers and just like players. I think one of the beauties of esports is that it's online and it's on your computers or on a console or whatever it might be. And so there is so many possibilities of increasing engagement or coming up with creative ways to play the games or add on mini games or whatever it might be. I would say like one other sort of area that I think a lot of investors are starting to pay attention to is like software for anti-cheat because with like basically competitive gaming becoming such a big thing and people just basically building hacks for Counter-Strike or League of Legends or whatever it might be. Like when you're playing in online tournaments, that becomes a very real problem or Counter-Strike is notorious for like when you're playing just ranked matches, you'll end up probably like one every 10 games. You'll end up in a lobby with someone who's actually hacking and uh, you have to report them and then someone has to like review them and, and ban them. And so that's what Fortnite, like I believe they acquired a company in the anti-cheat realm. And uh, that's one of the biggest things on the infrastructure side to like keep an eye on and, and like whoever can build the best anti-cheat tool for detecting what programs maybe someone's running in the background or how they're cheating is a very valuable tool. Yeah. We're starting to see sort of almost category creation or, or people are trying to, you know, a uh, few companies doing what our friends at PlayVS are, are trying to do is sort of, you know, create esports leagues at, at high school level and, you know, get a whole new set of people in middle school level adopted, uh, adopted into the, into esports. And then also, you know, people were creating things like the meta, uh, which is training software for professional esports athletes. Are there any sort of new categories that you expect to be that you really bullish on that you want people out there who are looking for ideas to to experiment or innovate on? Oh man, I, I mean, I, I think training is is a really interesting area, just given that the possibilities of basically building a combine or whatever it might be online is is really interesting. Like, what does a forty yard dash look like in video games, and uh, sort of building that benchmark, I think, is going to be really interesting. I think for me, like not really pure esports side, but I think 
that something that will be really interesting is uh, for streamers and, and like YouTubers who are playing nonstop, I think there's a big opportunity to basically build a tool that auto like edits these clips into like the five, 10 minute videos that they're clipping their four hour streams down into. Like, I think it's pretty insane that like Ninja or these big streamers are paying editors to like go through their eight hour stream and pick out what is the good clip and, and making it entertaining. I think that's where things are heading. I, I just can't imagine that two, three years from now, the biggest uh, streamers and creators are going to be sitting there and hiring editors to go through. And I, I think that's when you'll start to have even more people break through as far as getting discovery, especially in like a game like Fortnite, where there's so many amazing clips out there, but it, it just gets lost because maybe it's not as polished. I, I'd actually say like, uh, I, I hope to see like a lot of entrepreneurs going after bigger, bigger opportunities. I think esports has been such a, a popular segment or sector in the last like two years. We've, or at least during my time at Bessemer and, and, you know, continuing on through the last year, seeing like dozens and dozens of companies that are like X for esports or Y for esports. And I think that a lot of those companies are more, they're building kind of like features or small products as opposed to companies. And I think that's been like a little bit unfortunate because I think a lot of those companies are just going to end up not being able to get the scale or the traction that they need just by building like, you know, something useful. So I think, I think that there's definitely room for like some big industry changing companies to, to certainly come out of gaming and esports in the next couple of years, but I haven't seen any, any just yet or any obvious problems that need to be solved. Yeah. And, and, and just to add to that, I, w- I would touch on like what you said, Eric, or what you said earlier, Eric, where the, basically esports has an opportunity to, to leapfrog traditional sports in a lot of ways because they don't have to maybe deal with those same learnings. Like they can already learn from that today. And I think, one of the things that's been interesting to watch in, in esports today is that a lot of the leagues or publishers are trying to basically mimic what the traditional sports teams are doing. And the difference is that historically those sports teams basically built their revenue model off of ticket sales and having people in seats. Whereas in esports, we're, we're likely not going to have that just given that people love watching on Twitch and YouTube and that experience is such a great experience for viewers. So trying to brainstorm more revenue streams for leagues and teams is going to be a really like important model moving forward rather than just focusing on maybe what worked in traditional sports and bringing that over. Totally. How do the big players, like how does Google, Apple, Facebook, you know, Amazon, obviously Amazon bought Twitch. Like how do those players play in, in, in gaming esports broadly? Do they play and why did Amazon buy Twitch? Yeah. I, I mean, I think so. The major players like Google with YouTube and, and Amazon with Twitch are sort of the two obvious ones. Facebook has actually made a little bit of effort into this space as well with some gaming initiatives. They've signed maybe a couple live streamers and they actually had one of the pro leagues for, for Counter-Strike. What's an exclusive deal? I think that Facebook and, and Apple, let's say, like both basically weren't really in this space organically. I think Twitch is really neat because Twitch was basically all organic, you know, and it's just become the natural place for game streamers to go. And I think that's almost to a fault where people associate Twitch immediately with gaming. And so for Twitch, it's like, how do you basically break free of maybe just being known for playing video games and build that into a bigger live streaming site? I think for Amazon, I I can't speak to exactly why they bought it, but I think they likely saw a bigger vision of of live streaming and, and, and saw that this is going to be a very, 
like I, I think the, the time that people are spending watching a specific streamer is just absolutely like insane to think about. And I'm sure if you looked at the metrics of, of Twitch of like, wow, like this, this there's like a thousand people that watched Nate chat for the entire eight hours that he was streaming. Like that's, that's a crazy thing to think about. And so I think just engagement uh, at like the very core of Twitch or YouTube is, is very interesting. I think YouTube has taken a very different approach over the past couple of years where they also basically didn't really care about the live component. And in the past couple of years when they launched YouTube gaming and then actually pulled YouTube gaming back into just greater YouTube, uh, they, they realized that live was a really interesting component and making that experience as good is, is really important as well. So I think those two are sort of the clear leaders. I think Facebook is just very far behind in this regard. I think Instagram has done an interesting thing where basically all the great clips for, for gaming end up on, on Instagram. Um, and like, that's notorious of how like Drake found Ninja. I uh, was watching, like he, he talked about how he was watching like the discover page on Instagram and found his clips. And so like that's become a, a good channel for them. But overall, like I think that, Facebook, it, it should be much more focused on sort of creating the next Ninja rather than like trying to get Ninja onto his platform. Because I think at this point, it, you're, you're trying to enable more people to stream on your site versus like trying to get the bigger guys on your site. Because it's just not going to make sense for Ninja to maybe move over to a Facebook tomorrow, uh, given that there's so many of his fans are already on there and, and, and Twitch is really unique in the sense that I don't know if you're familiar with like how the subscription model works where you're subscribing and directly basically supporting them in a Patreon esque model and that lock in to a streamer of like, Hey, I have 20,000 people paying me $5 a month. Like I can't move platforms. And so that bot, like that buy-in right there is like super huge and reduces the, the switching cost between platforms. And, 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 and basically Twitch or YouTube has become everything for non-live and, and Twitch has become the place from live and it's slowly, YouTube has climbed back, I would say, but historically I would just associate it as like everyone watches all the, the like VODs or replays on YouTube and everyone watches live on Twitch. And it, it's an interesting battle for YouTube to basically move into the pure live battle as well. Let's sort of... Uh do a couple things. John, I want to both trace the, the past and, and the future here. So how has a firm like Vesemer thought about games you know, in the last, like, like before the things really popped off with esports? Let's sort of trace the evolution of, of the industry. Like in the early, like in late 2000, you know, like 2000s, was it like mostly just about game creation or how was sort of like VC traditionally viewed gaming and how that evolved with esports? Yeah, I mean, I think traditionally, like, uh, venture investors were very hesitant, or they would all say that they were very hesitant to invest in games. And perhaps the only one that was doing it really prominently and successfully over time was Mitch Lasky from from Benchmark. But then as, you know, like, gaming started to grow as a, as a segment, you just started seeing some massive, massive companies like Supercell have a tremendous amount of success, and Minecraft and Roblox have a tremendous amount of success. And I think as, as this kind of, as this kind of like gain traction, you've started to see like, I think all of like the, you know, call it like top five, top 10 VC firms now have made major bets and have actually had major wins in the gaming space. So I'm not sure if any of those like, like massive kind of like bold bracket VCs say that they have a dedicated gaming practice, but yeah, whether that's like 
benchmark with Riot or Excel and index with Supercell or Bessemer with Twitch. Um, they've all made some really smart, thoughtful bets that have turned into, into billion-dollar outcomes. I don't, I don't know if any of those firms are saying that they are the gaming firm, but all of them are now actively looking across the gaming, the gaming ecosystem. And when did it start to really like take off in terms of like, and has is esports been like Bitcoin in the sense of it was like hot, not hot, hot, not you know, <laughs> like how has that evolution been among? Certain I, think just, I, I think it's just the general shift in uh, in gaming from being a single person console driven offline experience where uh, the vast vast majority of you know uh, the value creation went to publishers and the console developers to it being you know a much more interesting ecosystem where developers could find exposure um, where they could run like a service-based model became really, really interesting. And then where all these kind of like consumer platforms came out of it as well, like I said, on the store side and the chat side and uh, the entertainment side of things. Um, and I think that that's where it really kind of like opened up people's minds. But more than anything, it's just like, it's the change that gaming used to be something that was done by tens of millions of people. And now it's being done by billions of people. Yeah, and and I would also add like I think there's a small component of like basically a lot of these VCs or investors or like let's say the billionaires or whatever are like their kids are playing these games and getting more excited about meeting Ninja or like uh, like a big streamer pro athlete or pro esports athlete than they are like an a list celebrity and like I think that's a really eye opening thing for a lot of these people where it's like you're more excited about like me meeting like ninja than like michael jordan that's crazy and like i think that's where we're at today and and i think that's only going to continue to grow because these these people are like very real stars and they're like the value is are like it's just a matter of capturing that value and so a lot of these vcs are trying to figure out how to best step into this space and capture that value one of one of my favorite moments of the last year was being at the nba finals when the, when the Cavs were playing the Warriors and we were, we were walking behind Dan to towards seats and someone started rushing down towards the court and we were like wondering what the commotion was, like thinking they were going to like run on the court or something. And then the guy just runs up and was like, Nate shot, Nate shot. Like, let me take a picture. <laughs> and obviously like the whole, you know, it's like, you know, this TV and, and, and Dan are all like turning around like, wow, like this is certainly, certainly a thing when, it's like people didn't associate traditional sports fans of being like video game fans. And now you just see this, this convergence of, of mainstream kind of like popular culture being both sports and gaming. And right. it's, it's pretty cool to see that. There was this iconic photo of, of Mark Zuckerberg giving a, like some keynote at, at F8, I think. And, and there are like a few hundred people with, you know, VR headsets on and sort of this iconic image of, of a world and of a virtual reality. And you could imagine a similar, you know, photo or a small clip of like, LeBron James or Kobe Bryant running up to Nate Shaw to be like, let me get a picture with you. That sort of like, you know, scene tracing sort of the evolution of, of like how the, how, how big this has become or will be. Yeah. And in, I mean, like you even see professional basketball players or professional athletes, like asking to play video games with these professional like video game players. And like, uh, like Josh Hart on the Lakers is like a perfect example of like, playing Fortnite with Nate Chad or like wearing hundred thieves apparel when he's walking into like the Lakers game, like that is already happening. Like the overlap is there and his fans or Josh Hart's fans and is like, are like, this is awesome, you know? And, and that's where I think this is all heading. Like there's no longer going to be this clear separation between a sports fan and an esports fan. Like 
they're one in the same. And it's just a matter of like how you figure out how to have those grow symbiotic. Before we get into the future, why didn't one of you guys say, hey, we're going to create a better Fortnite or a better League of Legends or just a better, better game? Is that too difficult? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, as much as I would love to, to be able to do that, I think the truth is like a lot of the, the games that we see with the exception of, I, I mean, maybe even Fortnite, you could argue as, as well as like a lot of the major games that we see today weren't basically built as those games. Like they they basically were mods of existing games and basically tweaking them to maybe be like a totally different version of the initial games. Like Dota two is like, uh, I forget what it's actually a mod or league of legends, like a Dota, uh, a mod of Dota one. And, and like those games, basically are just like natural evolutions of others. So I think it just naturally comes from like that hacker world or like the community of basically like saying we want this. And like for, for Fortnite, like Fortnite wasn't initially a, a battle royale game. Like it was basically a sub game of the main game. Like, and, and, and that basically the main game, which was like a single player game just basically never took off. And they realized, okay, like the battle or hell game, it's like where everyone wants to be playing and that's what we're going to put all of our time into. But that to me even is like, they didn't know that this was going to be nearly as big as it, like as it was. And so I think it, it is really hit driven, but a lot of it just comes organically of like they're building and tinkering with new things. And it just naturally like evolves into something bigger. Yeah. If you want me to beat Fortnite, I'd probably need like 400 or $500 and like, 200 people in 10 years. So the bar is very high. I, yeah. And, and even with that, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I just have like a tremendous, tremendous amount of respect for game developers because they have the, they have the hardest job of all. Wow. And that money is just hiring small teams to just basically pump out experiments. Not, not, not small teams and experiments. It's just like that, that is, you know, Fortnite was probably, you know, at least, $50 million to build like a modern AAA game that you'd see like a big Christmas blockbuster game is, you know, somewhere between 50 and hundred million. And obviously I'm assuming I'm not going to make a great game right away. So I asked for 400 to 500 so I can make, yeah, like four or five games with Blake. <laughs> Blake, are you making this with me? Oh yeah, I'll, I'll make it. Let's do it. If you can raise the 400, let's do it. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, could you see someone like Van Gilbert being like, Hey, we're getting screwed by this league. I mean, I'm not, they're not, but I'm saying like in the future, could you imagine someone being like, Hey, we're going to make our own game. Yeah. I, I actually don't think that's that far fetched. Cause I think that would be a natural evolution of all this, of like maybe owners coming together and being like, Hey, we want to build our own game. I think it's a little bit more difficult than that. But I think the, the hope is that like going off of what John said, where like, because the brands of these major organizations are so huge that what ends up happening instead of these owners or like these teams having to build their own game, it's just like they get involved in the development of 10 or 20 games that are before they release. It's like, Hey, how do you like want to build esports organically and like authentically with these 10 teams that are all going to be participating or 20 teams. And I think that's just naturally what's going to happen. But I, I actually, I'm not as opposed to maybe like, everyone coming together and building a game. I just think it's a lot harder than just like waking up and saying you're going to do it. And I think that's, that's by far the biggest thing. I think what would maybe be more likely is like, yeah, actually I don't, I don't even know what would be more likely. It's, it, the hope is that you're just involved really early on with these games before they become big, like and Epic games is approaching you before they release Fortnite. And they're like, 
hey, we want to do esports right, like, and we want these ten teams who all have huge brands that are going to help us build our our competitive scene and being involved sort of on day one versus like being involved like ten years into the, the game. So in the future, I mean, what what can we expect the next you know, few years, three years, five years from now? Like, are the dominant games going to be new? Like, how is this ecosystem going to evolve? And what might that look like from a venture capital perspective? If the top five games take the, you know, like the vast majority of like revenue and consumer attention, you know, I think over the next five years, probably like all five of those change or maybe like one per year or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's not going to be, you're not going to see like a wholesale change here overnight. And those games that have been around is Blake said, League of Legends, Counter-Strike, et cetera, I think are going to continue to do really, really well. And we'll probably still be in the top five or at the very least top 10. So that would be my prediction on, on games. But yeah, I think you'll see a lot of great new stuff coming. I'm a little bit less bullish on mobile right now. And I think I'm more bullish on just like the console experience and the PC experience is so good. And it's so fun to play like great, rich, long session multiplayer games with your friends. I think that, that experience is, is only going to get better. So I'm kind of uh, I'm bullish on that unlike the resurgence of, of that category right now. My, my personal opinion is that like League of Legends and, and Counter-Strike will be around for at least the next 20, 30 years as being like the top two games. I, I think in order for new games to emerge like a Fortnite, you basically need to create new genres of, of games. So for Fortnite, they basically created or built the best game in, in Battle Royale. And I, like League of Legends, in my opinion, is the best MOBA or multi, um, multiplayer online battle arena and Counter-Strike is best FPS for PC. Like I think that's like in my mind is, is how you build like a top game in, in esports is like you build the best game in the new genre. I think it's way harder to displace the best uh, game already in that genre. I think that's just almost impossible at this point to build a better MOBA than League of Legends. But I, on top of that, I think every publisher that's releasing new games in the future is going to basically take the Fortnite approach. I think a lot of these major publishers are actually in a really weird spot where you look at, let's say Activision with, with call of duty where they release a new one every single year or yeah, I think it's every year and, and they charge $60 every year and it's like, okay, we're just going to keep making money by just releasing a new version, charging $60 and we're only going to basically make real updates once a year that is just not going to work in, in esports or at least in competitive gaming. I don't think if, in, like a true multiplayer game is just not going to work in the future where you need to be a free to play game or a very cheap game and you need to monetize by an app cosmetics or upgrades or whatever it might be. But I don't think that you can have that same revenue model that these major publishers have had historically. And I think, we'll start to see after Fortnite success uh, that if you are building a competitive game, you are going to likely follow that model of being free to play because once you, once you have the users like a Fortnite, for example, it becomes a little bit easier to monetize, but to Fortnite's credit, it was very ahead of its time and, or like it, it, it took a big gamble. I think league of legends is a perfect example of being free to play and still doing billions in, in revenue every year. And so I think, that's going to be a big shift in this space where the major players uh, or the major publishers are going to have to sort of try and move the, like the cruise ship of how do you, how do you try and get that? Of like, we're not going to build for $60 every single year and cannibalize our game from an esports perspective. So that's my, my 
overall perspective there. But I think from a startup side, like these, I think League of Legends and and those games are going to continue to grow. But I do think uh, we're going to see interesting stuff on on mobile. I'm I'm actually still fairly bullish on mobile. I think just the idea of people wanting to play games at all times, and I think like they, that there's a lot of potential there. So that, that's my personal opinion. How how will gaming esports intersect, if at all, with you know crypto, with VR, with other sort of platforms? And I know a lot, and you know people talk a lot about intersection of VR and gaming, and also people are excited about gaming use cases in crypto or sort of what crypto uniquely enables. What, what are your thoughts there? I, I I mean I think crypto and in, in in gaming make the most sense. I think in, in like Counter Strike, I, I don't know if you've ever played Counter Strike, but like in Counter Strike you have a lot of like in-app cosmetics for your weapons so you can get like very cool weapon skins and they're randomly number generated so like you technically have a unique one but the problem for for Counter-Strike is that like in the marketplace and sort of that whole world is owned by by Valve who is the publisher in this case as well so like that to me like I think we are going to move towards a world eventually where like there are very rare in-app items or cosmetics and being able to validate that maybe on the blockchain or basically have a third party store. I think that is all really interesting, but it basically requires these major publishers to take a step back. And I think that will be really hard for, for them to to do unless they basically see the bigger vision there. So I, I do think like crypto is probably the most obvious. I think I'm, I'm less bullish on, on like VR and esports. I think like right now, uh, at least from like a gameplay perspective, like I don't think people are going to be playing like VR games competitively for at least like a decade, if if not even more. Like I think just the latency and graphics just really aren't there. But and and it's also I, I just can't see it being in the same that it is right now. Like this, the experience of these games and being as balanced as they are takes a lot of time, and I, I might just be a little bit more skeptical there. And then. Yeah, I, I think just crypto is probably the most obvious. And I, my, my personal hope is that like someone from the crypto community builds a great game and, and that would be awesome for basically everyone. But again, it's, it's way harder like said than done. Maybe my, my last question is, you know, when people talk about sort of the future, let's say crypto or VR, they say that you know, it won't just be sort of you know, an individual sector in the same way that like the internet wasn't an individual sector and like having a crypto fund in 20 years might look as silly as having an internet fund today or, or a VR fund. Do you see a world in which gaming is, is that similar that it becomes all encompassing and that like we're gaming across every platform is a sort of gamification of everything and sort of the, you know, there's less sector specific gaming funds and more like the main funds are, are gaming. Like what's sort of the you know, biggest possible world here and, and what's likely in your view? No oh, man, I, I mean, I, I think that this gamification of everything will, will naturally come. I think like if you think about just how kids are growing up today and just like what they're used to, like I think everyone is very like gaming is becoming a part of everything. I don't know if I would still call that like a gaming fund. I think that in, in my mind, I think gaming or like esports funds or whatever it might be are likely just going to look a lot more similar to like a fund that's like financing like movies where you're just like, okay, we're just only going to focus on betting on these publishers or maybe just one or two teams. And that's my guess, but I'm, I'm curious to hear John's. 
Yeah, I, I actually don't think like a gaming specific fund. Uh, well, I don't know if that is the most attractive thing or the best strategy because if I were a really successful gaming developer, I'd love to work with an investor who's got a variety of like consumer internet companies in their portfolio. Like, I think I would learn more from somebody who's like an investor in Tinder and Allbirds and a few other things than if they were just an investor in other competitive game companies. Because yeah, I see gaming as basically just massive, massive consumer products. And so I'd want to learn more from other super fast scaling consumer products as well as opposed to just from within within our own our own industry. And so I think what you're going to see is just like every every major VC in the same way that every major VC now has made great mobile investments and consumer internet investments and SaaS investments etc. I think literally every great VC is going to, is going to have a strong gaming portfolio or is going to make more gaming gaming bets and I think that that's compelling for gaming entrepreneurs. That's a great way to way to close. For people who want to learn more about Hundred Thieves, John, where, where would you point them, and what should they stay tuned for? At One Hundred Thieves on Twitter, at Ron Robinson on Twitter, uh, or come to LA and watch one of our games. Perfect, Blake. Any any plugs from your end? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I write a lot about this stuff on on Twitter, and always I'm happy to have conversations about it. So feel free to follow me on there at, at Blake IR. Awesome, and I, I just want to. Last is that we are very fortunate to be a, a, a tiny investor in, in 100 Thieves, uh, ourselves at Village Global, and excited to have been uh, friends and allies with you guys for, for quite some time and for Dan Gilbert to also be a, an LP at Village and excited for, excited for more. This was an epic first, uh, first episode of our eSports series. Thank you guys for coming on. No, thank you. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 